chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Friends, we really put you through the ringer last month talking about online dating and our society's most fearsome figure, the fuckboy. But this week, as we move into a cozier fall season, we're bringing you a whole month of the personal favorite, himbo king of the jungle of mine and Eliza's internet darling, Brendan Fraser. A whole month of Brendan Fraser. I am so excited to just love up all on this adorable himbo man. Yes, I really had forgotten how much I loved Brendan Fraser. And I guess that's what these internet trends are good for is that you're reminded like, hey, remember that guy? Didn't he just fill your heart with joy as a young person? Yes, he did. Yeah, there's a lot that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks as we cover a bunch of Brendan Fraser's movies, and we'll get into some of that later in this episode. But excitingly, we are going to start things off with just a bundle of fun and joy and um, a little sprinkling of female gaze in there just to spice it up. One of our favorite Mm -hmm. movies, George of the Jungle. (laughs) Yay! Oh my gosh. Okay, so can we just jump into the Google summary? Because dear listeners... Before Brendan Fraser even made his amazing internet comeback, you better believe that Eliza and I had already spoken several times about how much we both absolutely love George of the Jungle. So this is going to be a love fest. Strap in. I'm ready. Google summary time? It is definitely Google summary time. Tell us what this movie's about, Chanel. You've never been happier to. All right, here's your Google summary for George of the Jungle, the year of our Lord, 1997. George, played by Brendan Fraser has raised himself since he was a baby and a plane crash stranded him in an African jungle. Now an adult, George has his first human contact in years when he rescues explorer Ursula Stanhope, played by Leslie Mann, from a lion. George and Ursula connect, and she leaves her fiancé Lyle, played by Thomas Hayden Church, and takes George back to San Francisco. But when George learns that his gorilla buddy has been captured, he and Ursula return on a rescue mission. Ugh. Ugh. It's just simple, as a himbo should be. Well... Uh, Eliza, that's what Google says George of the Jungle is about, but what is George of the Jungle really about? So this movie is ostensibly a goofy kids movie, but there's so much more in here about what makes a man attractive to a woman. Mm. And the movie itself, I think, ultimately concludes that it's a combination of sort of traditionally masculine and traditionally feminine traits and not just one or the other, and in fact falls more on the side of softness and kindness and all of those sort of things that aren't, especially when you're looking at it like through a 90s lens, those traditional like strong masculine qualities. Yeah, I agree. I think that this movie has surprising depth in that way. It has the kind of uh, class conflict that we've talked about in other rom-coms, but it really couches that more in what kind of masculinity you want and is more truly attractive. And Mm -hmm. I think that's encapsulated in my favorite film that I, or my favorite scene, that iconic scene where all of the women at the fancy, you know, socialite party in San Francisco go out to the horse corral and watch George, like in a open chested white diaphanous shirt, chasing the horses in slow motion. And they're, (laughs) 
And they're all talking about how gorgeous he is. And one of the best moments is that one of the women leans over to Ursula and she's like, well, what is he like, you know? And, and Ursula says, you know, he's not smart like a, like a lawyer or a doctor. He's not brainy like that, but he has sensual intelligence. <laughs> and I just want to talk to you about sensual intelligence because the movie plays that like a joke, but it's also true. It has a serious ringing truth to it. <laughs> yeah, the movie plays it as a joke, but also like makes that point pretty specifically that that's what is attractive about George. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, for comedic effect, they couch it as sensual intelligence, but I think ultimately it's what we would probably more commonly refer to as emotional intelligence. Yes. You know, and he's sensual because he's often shirtless and he's got a sort of wild ruggedness about him because he's from the jungle and all of that. And that's what the women are, you know, on a gut level responding to. But what makes Ursula, the female lead, fall for him is that he's kind and gentle and he doesn't push her and he asks her what she wants and she he does things for her to make her smile you know all of these things that are very he's very sort of receptive to how she's feeling and he responds to it in kind as opposed to the other man in her life who doesn't even listen to her forget like really listen to her yeah i mean george's simplicity which is always played for laughs as a kind of lack of intelligence is actually his biggest strength because lyle her fiance is complex in the worst possible way. He understands how emotions work. He (laughs) understands how society works really well, but he uses that power for evil. I mean, one of the most striking moments with him, I think, is when Ursula gets sort of like knocked out during the whole scuffle with the lion after George saves her. She spends some time with him at the treehouse. And then when Lyle finds her again and wants to take her back with him, he tries to convince her, really gaslighting her, that he was the one who saved her from the lion and not George. He tells her like, oh, you bumped your head. You don't remember. It's such a clear moment of like manipulation that is that is serving as a foil to George's emotional simplicity, right? George is like, I like Ursula. Ursula, pretty. Me, George, like Ursula. <laughs> and while I guess we're supposed to see that in some ways as like backward and stupid and, and unvaluable, it's actually emotionally pure in a way that I think like soothes me as a woman dating in this era of dating apps, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, and you mentioned the role of society, right? You mentioned that that her fiance is, you know, he's socially aware, right? Like mm-hmm. he understands what society's expectations are and everything. And I think that that comes back into it time and time again in this movie because Ursula is supposed to be from a like wealthy family who are like right in the middle of San Francisco, like high society and politics. And there are expectations. Her entire life is about expectations and meeting them or not meeting them. Right. Like she is, you know, works for her father and she is marrying the right guy and they're throwing the right kinds of parties and all this sort of stuff. And she literally leaves society by going on like a safari adventure situation in order to get away from that. And then runs into a man who has no concept of society. Yes. And in fact, that's where a lot of the jokes about George's lack of intelligence come from. Um, Because, you know, obviously George of the Jungle is very loosely based on the idea of Tarzan, Mm -hmm. right? But like the original Tarzan book, which is a wild read, is about someone who has grown up in the jungle with no knowledge of humans 
discovering human things and learning, like learning language and learning how to read and learning how to dress himself and all these kind of things. And actually those basic things George has, and I mean, it's played for laughs because like, why would he understand the things he does? But he speaks English. He has a dog. He says here, kitty, kitty. He has a, like a house with a, you know, full kitchen and a garden and, you know, all these things that like he's, he's got the basic sort of elementary education component down. It's not about learning that. It's that he has no understanding of the societal expectations for how to interact with someone. He doesn't have embarrassment. He doesn't really understand how male-female relationships are supposed to work. He, you know, all these sort of things. He doesn't know how to behave himself at a party. He doesn't understand what a shopping mall is. And so he's very sort of freeing for Ursula because he doesn't come with any of those expectations that she's so used to. Absolutely. Like that scene where they dance around the fire at the treehouse and he tells her, you know, <laughs> what is like, what is it, embarrassed? It's like there's some word embarrassed or shame or something that he says, like, I don't know what that means. And then they both just get to dance with abandon and it's silly and lovely and it feels actually so fresh and modern even though this movie was made 24 years ago. It, it just blew my mind that, yeah, the kind of freedom that she gets in that moment, which is light and frothy, is also just like sh so, so reassuring. It's so wholesome in a way that feels very 2021 still. Absolutely. Well, and I feel like you get a little bit of that sense again when there's a scene once they're back in San Francisco, they're driving in the car and she's frustrated. She's trying to figure out how to explain to her parents that she's not going to marry her fiance. She's trying to figure out how to explain George. She's had all these sort of hushed conversations with her best friend being like, what do I do? What do I do? And they're in the car and he's like, just yell. And the two of them just let out one of those like, ah, like, you know, at the top of their lungs as they're driving down the street. And again, it's played for laughs, but it also is so clear that in that moment, she lets off so much like off of her chest that she hadn't found a way to do otherwise. And it's that sort of sense of abandon and lack of rules and lack of embarrassment that enables them to do that. And, and, it, and it's, it's interesting because it's almost like, okay, this movie could have tended toward that trope that we've criticized before, which is the born sexy yesterday trope. But it doesn't because, like you said, I mean, George has that elementary education. He has enough emotional intelligence where he's teaching her things about the world too, about like emotions, about, mm -hmm. about life, about being free. And of course, there's, there's stuff that we can talk about with that association being, you know, connected to like living off the grid in the jungle in Africa, which is a whole like ball of wax that we should probably discuss <laughs> But it, it is amazing yes. how well the movie avoids that sort of like, oh, look, he's a he's a sexy baby. He's not right. He's distinctly not. Yeah. If anything, the, the sexy baby moments are very sort of aware of themselves and played for laughs in a very pointed way. You know, you do get the scene where he comes out of the shower and he's just naked and she has to like cover up his junk and hustle him out of the room. And, you know, those are sort of the moments that are the closest to the kind of scene you get in like Splash. Mm -hmm. But they're funny moments, and then they immediately lean back into these sort of more kind of traditionally rom-com romantic scenes of the two of them, like, going on a makeover trip through the city <laughs> and, you know, and getting to know each other at a party and all these kind of things um, where there's a give and take in the relationship in a way that you don't have with the, like, true born sexy yesterday mm -hmm. trope. Maybe we shift to talking about the whole Africa of it all, the jungle, the animals. Yes, the Africa of it all. You know, it's interesting because... In a lot of ways, for its time, this movie is quite subversive in the way that it addresses the Africa of it all. You know, you've got these characters who are the um, the porters mm -hmm. for this, you know, this hiking expedition, 
who Lyle continually treats as not even just like dumb non-white people, but truly primitive. Like he's got an actual like 19th century attitude towards these people. He thinks they've never seen a camera, even though their literal job is to take tourists up a mountain. (laughs) So they're constantly shown to be much smarter than Lyle and to be in many ways more sort of westernized than Lyle and they're making fun of him. And, you know, and so the movie is, is making all these points about the way that Africa and African characters are portrayed or talked about in Western and specifically American culture. But at the same time, it also uses those tropes to make fun of them in a way that still utilizes those tropes. Um, There's definitely one of the things I noticed is that the African place names um, as they're like zooming into a new spot or talking about someone getting lost in the forest of wherever are often sort of used as a joke not necessarily a cruel joke, but there is sort of humor in the way that the narrator says the names of the jungles and the cities and whatnot that they go through um, in a way that like rubbed me a little bit <laughs> of the wrong way watching it this time. Yeah. Like you would never be like, ah, lost in the great city of London in that same kind of voice. Yes, very much so. There's there's definitely a small bit of that still uh, the darkest heart of Africa feeling, which they're mocking, but they're also using it for that effect at the same yeah. time. Yeah, it's it's still a, a plot element, um, and they're still leaning on those tropes, even if they are doing it in a way that like is pointing out that that's stereotypical and patronizing and colonializing. Um, so it's they get some points and they lose some points here. <laughs> yes, I agree. At the very least, they do, you know, we know that the, the headquarters, Mr. Kwame, and at least they all have names. You know, it's like really sad that this is the things we have to give them points for. And they acknowledge that, the, also, that they're all speaking Swahili, which is a real language, you know. So there's that, I guess. I also love that this headporter, Mr. Kwame, um, Lyle continually calls him Quame. I know. I laughed so hard when I realized that. And it's actually a brilliant joke because all the other characters have been referring to him as Kwame or Mr. Kwame, um, including Ursula, like no problem. And then halfway through the movie, like Lyle says something, you're like, what the fuck did he just say? And then you realize he's going, come along, Quame, I know the way. And all of the guys behind him are just rolling their eyes. And you're like, oh man, like how many idiotic white tourists have they taken up this mountain who have called this guy Quame? It's it's a wonderful little bit, actually, and they don't draw a lot of attention to it. He, I think he actually said it like two or three times before I really realized that's what was happening. It's so, it's so funny, and I think what I love the most about Lyle's character that the movie really like pulls the rug out from under him, and they really, and I was kind of shocked by this, because it's rare for movies of this period to acknowledge whiteness when it's a primarily white cast, but Towards the end of the movie, when Lyle comes back to the jungle, uh, or I guess he never did. He ever leave? He never left, right? He's just been in Africa. Uh, he gets he gets taken to a prison in one of the cities in Africa, and then leaves there and returns to the jungle. So he's in Africa the whole time, right? So while Ursula and George are in San Francisco having their whirlwind tour, um, Lyle takes up with what is not explicitly but subtly a white supremacist cult. Um, and he has a bunch of like clearly like central and northern European white goons who the who the movie gives um subtitles to in English, even though they're all speaking English. <laughs> they're all called like Hans and Gunter and Carl. <laughs> yeah, they definitely look like they came out of some like paramilitary group that was like trained in South Africa, made up entirely of Swedish, you know, like 
seven foot tall dudes mm-hmm. and they're in some weird religious cult on an island off of the coast and now they've come to attack all the natives and you're like yeah this is this feels great it was just such a strong acknowledgement of the racial dynamics and colonialism that i was a little bit taken aback by it i was like this is a pg kids movie from the 1990s but i love it kudos kudos to the writers for that little that little bit no there's a lot of subversive elements here you know and one of the the running bits in the movie which i love but is you know sort of one of the the more kind of child-friendly surface-level jokes is that they've got this narrator the whole time who's got this very sort of like early 1900s epic storytelling voice Mm. kind of thing, but he narrates in a way that is actually quite unusual and, you know, is, is supposed to be parody. And so he ends up having conversations with the characters and, you know, and things like that. But he, the narrator, frequently comments on these sort of things. You know, he comments on how stupid Lyle is. He comments on the fact that, you know, he's treating all these guys like they're idiots, but actually he's the idiot. And um, the porters at one point interact with the narrator. When Lyle trips and falls into some, um, like, elephant poop, they look directly at the camera and to the narrator are like, ah, yes, that classic trope of the idiot white man falling into some poop. Here's the part where we throw our heads back and laugh. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, in those moments, they're fun because they are, you know, as as just sort of dialogue, they're very basic. But what they're doing is much more complex. Yeah, the the meta theatricality, the meta cinema of it all is really fun. It's just so delightful. And it also like allows you to enjoy the movie a little bit more. Right. Like because it kind of says like we're all in on the joke, aren't we? Elbow to the ribs, elbow to the ribs. You know, it's it's a really smart um, move. And it, and it makes the, all of the sort of extremely cartoonish elements of the movie, which, you know, this movie has maybe about a third dialogue and the rest is sort of like physical comedy bits, which is fine. That's the point. Um, but it's very cartoonish. And that narrator really keeps it in this like highbrow world where you can accept all of that like wild physical comedy is part of the... the intelligent satire and parody of it all totally the way you're talking about it just now made me think of um the musical a funny thing happened on the way to the forum Mm. which is a farcical musical that takes place in ancient rome um and when it was first performed in either the late 60s or the early 70s i'm forgetting the exact date right now the first couple of preview performances, the audience was not reacting the way that they expected them to, to a lot of the scenes. They weren't laughing enough. They were sort of head scratchy about why the plot didn't make a lot of sense. And so at the last minute, they wrote a new opening number, um, which is called Comedy Tonight. And the song literally is basically the entire cast coming out on stage and being like, this is going to be a comedy. Everyone will be happy in the end. It's not always going to make sense. We're going to have courtesans, but nothing particularly sexy is going to happen. They're just plot elements. There's going to be some people who steal stuff, but they're really not going to get in that much trouble. Comedy! (laughs) And then they all run off stage. And they did that the first night that they had written that song, and everyone laughed for the whole show. See? Like, they were like, there was just laughter in the audience the whole time. Sometimes you just need something to give you permission to understand what you're watching isn't meant to be taken seriously. It's such a good point and a great lesson, Eliza, that framing framing is everything. It really, really and truly does. Like so many of the mm-hmm. rom-coms that we just drag through the mud would be helped by better framing. This is so true. So many of them, it's that you're just like, I don't know if they're going for something really sincere here or I don't know if it's supposed to be kind of tongue-in-cheek. 
if we're supposed to understand that this is meant to be dumb or if it's just dumb. And a little bit of framing can go a long way. Mm -hmm. Now, this movie might have too much framing. <laughs> it's aggressively framed. Yeah. Um, but in the end, I fall on the side of liking the framing elements in this movie. I like the... You know, the the idea that you're seeing a fantasy and that you're maybe hearing, it's like listening to a storybook story at times. You know, there's a shot of the elephant who acts as George's dog eating a giant milk bone. And the narrator's like, okay, the milk, milk bone's a bit much. Get it out of here. And instantly it's out of the shot. And it's like, it's a dumb joke, but it also sort of gives you permission to believe that you're not seeing the real story. You're seeing the like, hyper-fictionalized version of it. Mm -hmm. And that just, again, that allows you to enjoy it some more because if there are bits that rub you the wrong way or that you don't find as funny or you don't find as interesting, like you can kind of look past those and focus on the bits of the story you like. You know, you saying, saying that makes me wonder if that framing is somehow related to how aggressively female gazy the, the camera is in this movie mm. towards Brendan Fraser. And maybe we should talk a little bit about that, about how the movie sort of frames its desire for George and George's really hot rod bod, you guys. I mean, we're talking about <laughs> Brendan Fraser with an eight pack, eight pack um, and gorgeous legs. Yeah, I mean, this is Ooh. unbelievable. This And this is right before he started doing so many movies with stunts and stuff that he actually like broke his knee multiple times and had back surgery and he was in and out of the hospital a lot. And this is sort of right before then. So this is truly him at like his highest physical peak. Um, and the movie takes advantage of that, I think, in a way that is still fairly innocent and lovely, although there's certainly some objectifying going on. And we acknowledge that when we talk about women. So I think we should acknowledge oh, that when definitely. we talk about men. Um, but Janelle, could you, what would you say is your definition of female gaze? Or at least as it pertains to what we're talking about here? Oh man, I don't know if we've ever really had a, had a chance for me to do my in-depth lit review on the gaze. This is going to be fun. I feel like this is the right moment. It is. All right. Well, strap in everybody. Professor Walker's here. So the idea of the gaze, the cinematic gaze, and specifically the male cinematic gaze, comes from a feminist uh, film theorist called Laura Mulvey in her book, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. It was an essay first, then a book. And anyway, her argument is that the gaze of the camera, more often than not, is this sort of like objectifying gaze of women. That the camera is used, the gaze of the camera is sort of like a replacement for our vision. And it, and it frames, again, we talk about framing, it frames the way that we think about women in society by sort of providing us with this preponderance of images where women are shown in pieces, specifically, right? We see the breasts, we see the legs, we see the sexualized body, certain parts of the face that are emphasized for their sexuality rather than for their uh, storytelling potency, if that makes sense. So given that base of the theory, right, if that's the male gaze or what is now more commonly being referred to as just the gaze to keep the kind of sexuality of it all a little uh, more accurate, I would say that the female gaze then, which brings the camera to the man uh, in a sexualizing and objectifying way, is it's it's an idea that's still developing, to be quite honest. It's somewhat different, I think, because we, we're not seeing the man in pieces often. And we're often seeing... Mm -hmm. And the himbo is a really good reflection of this, I think. Less the camera objectifying specific parts of the man. Like, we don't even get, like, a hardcore, like, abs shot of Brendan Fraser in this film, really. You see it. You see full body shots. But you're not really getting that kind during of... The nudie, during, during the nude scene, I would say, is the closest oh, yeah. we get to that just, like, slow pan up his chest. 
and even then there's a comedic element there. You know, I think to to interrupt what Go you were ahead. saying about the difference between sort of the male versus the female gaze, I think one of the things that often happens in the early stages of academia when talking about gendered and sexuality oriented things is that people tend to take whatever the male version is and just flip it and have the totally. exact inverse and be like, this is the female version. And then as more nuance is brought into the conversation, it's realized that they're not just inverses, they are just different. Yeah. Um. Right? And so if the male gaze is this sort of look at the female as being you know, cut up into these different body parts and being objectified in that way, I think in the sense of the female gaze as in the camera gaze at a man for the pleasure of a straight cisgendered female, what you're going to see that actually is what the female wants to see is a more nuanced look at the man, as opposed to like, I just want a shot of his chest. What I really want is a shot of him in a flowing shirt running in slow motion after a horse. Exactly. I would say that in, in cinema, in like film theory classes, they probably show that shot as an example of the female gaze. Like I saw a TikTok the other day where there's a bit of a trend right now of like, people reacting to old Brendan Fraser movies with the the song uh, Wildest <laughs> Dreams by Taylor Swift playing. And it's because it is a yes. perfect encapsulation of that. It's it's not just about the physical body parts, but it's also sort of about, um, I mean, sensual intelligence, right? It's about like showing his sensitivity with the animals as part of that gaze. It's about the way he moves through space that's part of that gaze. You know, it's his freedom. It's his wild mm -hmm. abandon. It's sort of the same, I think it's the same principle as like, some people will often say that female objectifying pornography, for example, is often very visual. And then oftentimes, especially mm -hmm. for straight women, uh, there's a lot of more sort of literary pornography tends to be the, tends to be the assumption. And I think mm -hmm. that principle applies here. Uh, I think also the actions have a lot to do with what makes it sensual mm -hmm. to, you know, the sort of straight female gaze, right? Like I'm thinking about... Um, that very funny, I think it must have been a Super Bowl commercial from a number of years ago that was for Mr. Clean. And the husband starts cleaning the house and the woman immediately has this like fantasy with slow, like, you know, <laughs> slow jams music in the background where he is Mr. Clean, but he's like slowly sweeping and vacuuming and his ass is sticking like way out. And it's funny, but it also like is kind of true that like you could fully turn that into porn that women would want. Totally. Um, you know, and I think in this movie, one of the other moments that's incredibly sensual for, um, you know, for looking at George is actually a shot of him and Ursula together when Ursula is waking up in his bed for the first time at the treehouse and she's still a little out of it. And he's leaned in really close to her, not to kiss her, but to make sure she's okay. And the two of them are sort of talking in slow, quiet voices and he's kind of stroking her hair. And like that moment to me is very female gazy. Yes. And there's no part of his body in the shot. Yeah. It's cause it's very intimate. I mean, it's, it's that kind yeah. of emotional, not even just emotional, but that kind of like physical closeness without a, a explicit sexuality that can be very, yeah, sensual in a female gazy sort of way. Absolutely. Right. And I, I feel like if you were trying to create a shot that would be sort of mass appealing to a straight male audience, you wouldn't be like, it's going to be the shot of the two characters with just their lips really close to each other, mm -hmm. but talking, you know, right? Like that's not at least how Western cinema works, what you're going to do if that's your intended audience. And so this movie, which again is ostensibly for a like family audience, is filmed in so many ways, like it is made for a pack of very drunk, 
young women to be like sitting around a room and watching it. Yeah, there are so many visual references, like the scene with the horses and that moment in the mm-hmm. bed in the treehouse is all straight up ripped from romance novels, one hundred percent. I mean, it it has oh, that yeah. aesthetic even to it. his hair. Mm-hmm. Even the way they've done his hair to be this George of the Jungle thing, it's it's almost exactly the Fabio haircut, Mm -hmm. Um, which again, like we're talking about 90s. So we're talking about like peak Fabio um, visuals. He's on the cover of every romance novel or lookalikes are on the cover of every romance novel. It's like this guy with long, wavy, slightly blonde hair in an open puffy white shirt with a very chiseled chest and then like you know, sort of pirate outfit going on, right? Like, this is the look that we have decided in the 90s is, like, the sexy, sensual guy look. And they fully go for that in this movie. <laughs> There's nothing subtle about it. I love it. It's it's so... It's just freeing. And it and it made me think a lot about, like... Because here's the thing. I don't necessarily find Brendan Fraser attractive. Stay with me. Stay with me, listeners. So I think it is interesting <laughs> that he became from the jump, from the beginning of his career, kind of with Encino Man in 1992, he became almost instantly this himbo icon. That is the role he played mm-hmm. so many times. What do you think it is about him, Eliza, that fit the female gaze in the 90s in that rom-com, uh, romance novel sort of way that is now coming back with full force in 2021? His Just his performance style, his acting style, I think is very sincere um whatever kind of character he's playing i think there's a like a subtle confidence to it and a very sort of openness you know he's got i think eyes that are very expressive um he's got a very unintimidating smile um and so it makes his performances feel very authentic like you're seeing the real person Mm -hmm. um you know and especially if we're talking about someone's star text right like what take someone from just being a respected actor to like a Hollywood movie star, it's not always just acting talent, right? Like there's lots of talented actors out there who are not movie stars, but there's something that for whatever reason, when people watch you on the screen, they connect to, and then they connect that to your real person as well. And I think people were seeing Brendan Fraser on the screen and going, oh, I feel like this is a very real performance. I feel like he's being honest. I feel like he's probably very honest and genuine. And then his star tech sort of fit that. In interviews, he came across that way. Um, very famously, a couple of years ago, he and Leslie Mann were doing an interview talking about having made George of the Jungle 20 years earlier. And she says that even though she was already married at that point, she fell in love with him a little bit on set because he was just so kind and genuine and their scenes together were so much fun. And he was, you know, lovely and attractive and beautiful. And so she talks about how she had just this huge crush on him the whole time. And he does just come across as a very crushworthy type of person. He has a very sweet aura, you know? And part of that is because mm-hmm. he's a good Canadian boy. But it is also, I think, like you said, there's, <laughs> there's something about the expressiveness of his face. And there is a kind of natural himbo purity to him, right? If, if, we, if we accept that the mm-hmm. himbo is a figure who is uh, very attractive, um, not the most book smart or edgy, but also extremely kind and polite... He does. He sort of embodies all of those qualities on and off screen. And there is something deeply appealing about that, that I think, you know, when we were teenagers, maybe even in our early 20s, that kind of figure would not be seen as too appealing. It would be seen as maybe like unappealing. But now because of the way that romance culture and dating culture has shifted to be so jaded, 
there's something so hypnotic about that kind of sweetness, I think. I think you're right. And definitely culturally, we go through trends of what we find to be the most attractive. Obviously, there are some things that stay true for longer periods of time culturally, but even just sort of over a few years, over decades, there are things that go in and out of style on a large level. And beginning in the 80s, you know, you had this action man Mm -hmm. thing that was very hot is, you know, we're coming out of we're coming out of a Reaganism era. You know, there's this sort of um, middle or Western America, good old boy, strong man, jeans and a t-shirt, Bruce Willis, you know, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Honestly, even, um, even you see it in musicians, you know, like the, the visuals that you get when you think of Bruce Springsteen Mm -hmm. fit that kind of like working man aesthetic. Um, you know, and that, that was very strong, especially in the late eighties and then leading into the nineties. But then in the nineties, you get this sort of counterbalance of this soft sort of romance novel cover type character. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think going into the 2000s, you then get that kind of, we slip away from that level of sincerity and go to more of the sort of like angry emo punk boy type. Um, And now I think in many ways we are kind of reappreciating that like sincere, sincere, soft, pouty lipped, but not whiny kind of type, which maybe is why there's this sort of Brendan Fraser resurgence. I I feel like uh, friends who actually know me in real life will know that one of the last things that I did before the pandemic was I did a, a PowerPoint presentation party, which is something that Eliza and I do with our friends pretty pretty regularly, which is fun. <laughs> We're nerds. We are so nerdy. It's gross, um, but also the best. The first presentation I did at one of those parties was about Pete Davidson as this like example of Gen Z uh masculinity and i think in a way like if you and i was thinking that while watching george of the jungle that in a way like if you bring together (laughs) pete davidson as what i would call the my favorite garbage son hot guy um (laughs) like not a fuck boy maybe a fuck boy with a heart of gold you have to find out then the other counterbalance is i think you know like you said the return of this like soft himbo who wants to bring you a glass of water and take care of you and does not have a serious thought in his head but that's what you love about him and i i think that that is a that is a very progressive move coming out of a period of extremely toxic masculinity in the late aughts and the early <laughs> 2010s so i'm i'm here for it y'all i love the direction masculinity is taking right now oh yeah the the himbo trend the himbo trend is a lovely lovely antidote to the toxic masculinity trend it's also interesting because of course the phrase himbo comes from bimbo right it's a it's a him and it's a bimbo it's a himbo um but they're not necessarily again just a like a one-for-one reverse of what we consider a bimbo to be just like a ditzy you know hot blonde girl it's there tends to be an expectation with a character who we label as himbo that in addition to being maybe a little dumb or a little doofusy and also hot they're also kind in a way that's very sort of open book and and sincere and genuine. Yes. Um, there's a sort of what was it you were you were saying to me earlier about um, what makes a himbo? There's a there's actually a song. It goes, uh, "He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be sweet and polite. <laughs> he's got to be dumb and polite, dumb and polite, dumb and polite." Yeah, there's something about that, that like that's the combination that makes this himbo, which now we're definitely seeing a resurgence of. Um, And it's, you know, and again, I think this movie actually 
explains it really well with that he's not lawyer smart, but he's got a sensual intelligence or an emotional intelligence, right? Because it's not just that he's dumb but nice, but it's that he's maybe dumb by our standard, you know, testing methods, but that he's insightful in ways that are surprising or he's, you know, made choices to be kind rather than intelligence because of, you know, of he's made a value judgment. Um, and that's, I, I've been seeing that a lot in characters in the last few years, which I love. Yeah, he's basically the mirror image of the snarky nerd boy. Right, someone who has chosen to be smart rather than be kind. This is someone who has made a decision on some level to be kind rather than smart. The opposite of every single man in Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Instead of being small, scrawny, and snarky. He is tall, broad-chested, and just incredibly sweet. And why have we not always chosen this guy? Come on, guys. We're finally getting our (laughs) shit together. Let's always choose the himbo. So at one point in the movie, George has absolutely no clothes, and they decide they need to, like, go out and buy him some, like, modern, actually, you know, clothes that'll actually cover his body. Um, At this point in the movie, we have seen Ursula only in white button-down shirts and khaki pants. We know that things like this exist in her wardrobe. They put George, because that's what he chooses out of the dresser, in a flowery sundress and a floppy straw hat and take him out into San Francisco and go shopping. It is a joke in the movie, but it's not even focused on. It's just sort of like one of those funny things you notice in the background, kind of like Lyle saying Quame instead of Kwame. Mm. Like it just sort of exists and it's totally fine. She and her friend are like, yep, he's in a dress. Great. He's covered. We can take him to the store now and go buy clothes that my parents will approve of. Um, And then he looks good in an Armani suit, too. But, like, this movie allows him to be so feminine. And I love it. It, Again, it's another part of this movie that feels so fresh and contemporary. It's like he's full-on pulling a Harry Styles, you know? He's like, yeah, I want to wear a floppy hat and a dress. And I look great. Well, and earlier when he's starting to develop romantic feelings for Ursula, he puts a bunch of flowers in his hair. And he's sitting there and his buddy, the ape named Ape, says, like, what's going on, George? And he says, George just felt like looking special today. Ah, my heart. Like, he was (laughs) feeling good. He was feeling in love. So he covered himself in flowers. And it's totally fine. This is just what George is like. And I love that. Guys, if you feel like looking special today, put flowers in your hair. Put a little makeup on. Put on your floppy hat. Do what you gotta do. That's right. That's right. Well, I feel like especially as more and more sort of in the cultural conversation, we're having these discussions about like it's okay for someone to be a you know a house husband right like we want men who are going to be equal partners who are going to do the dishes and take care of the kids just as much as women and who genuinely want to do those things and don't feel like it's just like a a compromise they have to make in order to have a wife or in order to get sex or in order to whatever the himbo model like just slots right into that that's so insightful lies and it's true i tell everyone i meet when this topic comes up that we all need to recognize that we're going through what sociologists call the second demographic transition, which means that at this point, women, femmes, we are very quickly outpacing men in terms of professional success. We have already outpaced men in terms Mm -hmm. of education, and we will very soon outpace men in terms of earning potential. And you're right. In that world, just like in the 1950s in the U.S., where you know, women who stayed at home and were, you know, sweet and accommodating and, you know, servile were desirable partners. In the future, in the very near future, the himbo is going to be the perfect husband, the perfect house husband, 
which will be needed when the second demographic transition is complete. Oh my God, Janelle, you're so right. Yeah, you know, all of those those like 90s and 2000s movies where the woman goes on a rant about how, and the more women work and the more interesting they become, the less desirable we are to men. I feel like that conversation now in like romantic comedies needs to be like, and the more hardworking and the more interesting and the more blah, blah, blah that women become, the more and more we need these adorable soft boys. Yes. To come clean our homes and raise our children and support us as we rise to the top. Exactly. Okay, so I know we have in every episode like a suggestion for a screenplay that somebody else is going to write, but honest to God, somebody out there do a movie about a plucky himbo who moves to the big city looking for the career gal of his dreams. Come on! Honestly, I feel like you could just remake George of the Jungle, but instead of the two of them moving back to the jungle, he just like moves to San Francisco but like they have a million pets and he raises the kids and she like works at her dad's law firm and everyone's cool with it. I love this. I love it. You know what? The future might be like a little okay. The kids are going to be all right. This is the time in uh, the show every week where we take a break to thank our patrons on Patreon and specifically our romantic leads who are Bob, Esther, Ian, Trey, and Melissa. Um, you are special to me and I, and I love you for your essential intelligence and just your book intelligence and every kind of intelligence that you have. I love you. I do. If you want to become a patron and help support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash romcom killjoys. And for as little as $1 a month, which is just $12 a year, you can become a part of our killjoys family, get a little bit of background, you know, extras and stuff like that. Hear what we're going to be talking about in the subsequent months, all that good stuff. That's patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Also, you should go to our Facebook and Instagram at romcomkilljoys and follow us and like us and um, talk to us there and follow us on all of the various podcast forms that you use. So I think uh, we don't need antidotes this week, but we do need some supplements. If people are feeling the vibes of this movie, if they're into the, the you know, gender fluid feminism if they're ready for some himbos if they're loving the satire like what can we what can we suggest for them this week oh gosh well you know i really put on my professor walker hat uh this week because i just have a bunch of reading material that i want to offer as um you know recommended reading uh i did a huge deep dive in learning about the history of the term himbo because i was very curious about it it strikes me as a very contemporary term but it turns out it actually has a pretty long history um, I mean, first of all, apparently the term bimbo itself was for men when it initially emerged into the culture in English mm. and then uh, moved over to describe women in the 60s or so. But then, and this is my first piece of recommended reading for you all, uh, Rita Kempley, a cultural writer for the Washington Post in 1988, wrote an article that is titled, I kid you not, in all caps, the himbo, all powerful and all beef. It's the real men with three exclamation points. (laughs) Yes. And I read through this and laughed so hard. And it is all about, yes, um, dumb hot guys on screen in 1988. Please go read that. Um, Following that, um, I'm going to recommend an article in The Guardian that really uh, kickstarted the himbo discourse of the last year or so, which is called The Return of the Himbo, The Antidote to Toxic Masculinity by Priya Elon in The Guardian. Um, that just really talks about an 80s revival 
of what uh, Rita Kempley was talking about in the Washington Post. So that's recommended reading number two. And recommended reading number three is, of course, an acknowledgement that the bimbo in general has returned to the culture, primarily on TikTok, by virtue of a sort of like early 2000s um, resurgence, like the, the that kind of aesthetic, that kind of thing in um, fashion. A lot of early 2000s fashion trends have come back. And with that has come back the bimbo um, for the... Uh, the she's, the they's, and the gays, as they like to say on TikTok. Um, and there's a great article on that uh, phenomenon that's a little skept- a little too skeptical for my taste, but it's really interesting. It's on Refinery29. It's called Our Smooth-Brained Future, The Rise of the New Age Bimbo by Michelle Santiago Cortez. And I think that these three articles together will provide you a little syllabus on the himbos and bimbos of uh, today's culture and why we love them. That's what I am recommending as my supplements. What about you, Eliza? That's so many things, but they're all so excellent. I am going to go read all of those immediately as soon as we're it, done. It honestly made me want to create a syllabus on himbos and bimbos, which I may. So stay tuned. <gasps> Janelle, do it. Uh, maybe we'll post that on our Patreon. Oh, so I absolutely. Go follow yes. us. Yes. Okay. Go friend us on Patreon and see Janelle's himbo yes. syllabus. Uh, okay. I've got two suggestions. Um, I'm going a little less academic, but I'm going for the the lovable comedy aspect of this. Um, my first one, which is a recommendation I've been receiving from all of my friends and have finally given into, is the TV show on Apple Plus, Apple TV, uh, called Ted Lasso. Hey, Ted Lasso is a show about an American football coach who comes to England to coach an, a British football, as in soccer, team. Um, and it's a lot about the sort of culture clash of this kind of sincere, good-hearted, folksy, Midwestern American with these sort of lower-class, um, dirty-mouthed, angry Brits. <laughs> and it's hilarious. And it's also genuinely just so kind and so dear. I often find myself comparing it to some of the more sort of optimistic and um, lighthearted moments in Parks and Rec. It's got that kind of sincerity and kindness sort of underneath it. Um, but one of the things that I really, really love about the show, which is definitely related to today's topic, is that all of the boys on the soccer team, all the guys on the soccer team, are just this like team of adorable, well-intentioned idiot himbos. I love it. Um, and the more you watch the show, the more you will just find yourself being like, oh, this group of himbos are my favorite people on earth and I just want them to be happy and have good things happen to them. Um, and there's some serious Brendan Fraser energy happening amongst them. So if that's what you are drawn to, go watch Ted Lasso. If that's not what you're drawn to, go watch Ted Lasso anyway. It's amazing. I want to recommend a book that is actually from 1933. Wow. Uh, which is called My Life and Hard Times by James Thurber. Uh, James Thurber was an American satirist. He was a cartoonist and a columnist uh, for a number of newspapers around the country. And then over time, he turned his various columns and cartoons into short stories and short novels. And My Life in Hard Times is one of his best, one of his most famous. It is ostensibly an autobiography about growing up in Columbus, Ohio. It is unbelievably funny and smart and silly And in many ways, it reminds me of the George in the Jungle sort of framing devices that we were talking about earlier. It's got these kind of things where 
It's talking about real life things, but in a very sort of over the top, over exaggerated way. And the book both acknowledges that these are probably over exaggerated versions of the events and also is like, no, this is actually how it happened. You should take this word for word. This is 100% what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very funny and silly and it's just a series of vignettes. So it's really easy to read because you can just read little bits at a time or you can gobble it all up really quickly and it's very silly and very fun and if that's something that you are drawn to in George in the Jungle uh, My Life in Hard Times would be a great read for you because it's it's just it's just a ton of fun you know I feel like this week really inspired us Janelle um yes as as I said before it cannot be overstated how much Eliza and I share a deep and unabiding love for this movie <laughs> we've literally been talking about doing it since we started the podcast like a year and a half ago <laughs> No exaggeration. We were like a month in and I was like, so Janelle, when are we doing George the Jungle? I was like, as soon as possible. So thank you, Internet, for giving us some extra relevance for our our endless yes. and classic love for Brendan Fraser. We will be continuing to talk about Brendan Fraser for the next several weeks. So keep tuning in. It is Brendan Fraser month. Uh, all Brendan Fraser, all the time. Next week, we're doing it. We're doing the month. Yes! Woo! It is a rom-com. And we will make that clear listeners so tune in next week and go on to all of our social media and tell us what you think of brendan fraser of george of the jungle and of all of his other work thank you for listening to the rom-com killjoys podcast if you liked what you heard be sure to follow us on facebook and instagram if you'd like to support us further you can become a patron at patreon.com slash rom-com killjoys Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See See you next time. time.